Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Good morning. Some of you, if you're new today, my name is Mitch. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here. And, uh, and so we're studying through Revelation. We've, uh, we've covered chapter 1, and probably for me, in breakneck speed. I mean, uh, it, it would have been very easy to spend a couple of months in chapter 1, but, but we went like Jehu through the streets of Jerusalem and finished. And if you read your Old Testament, you're like, whoa, yeah. And you're, if you're not, you're like, who's Jehu? And <laughs> Jay what? But today we're, we're starting Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, and, and we're dealing with the, the church at Ephesus. And, and for the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at a, a different church who is receiving this, this entire letter. And it, it's vital to remember where we started. It's vital to, to remember our context. It, this word throne, remember, 37 times by my count, and some uh, guys do more. Um, they say it appears in other places, uh, and they're taking, extrapolating certain words. It can also mean throne. And so I'm just going straight up the word throne. Uh, 37 times it appears in this letter. So uh, I may not be scar, uh, scholar par excellence with some of those guys, but I will have to tell you this. Your teaching pastor is finally published. Um, there is a got notification this week that a lady uh, at the University of Georgia, I knew this was going on, but she finally published the article in a periodical, but she found the talk I did two years ago on Anna uh, Gamble on uh, um, All Saints Day. You guys remember that? The Moravian missionary, first successful mission among the Cherokees. She listened to it online. She called and asked for my manuscript, and she published me in her article at the University of Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. Some guys get published in theology. I get published in a botanical garden periodical. But so my count of 37, you, you may want to go take that other guy's count. But I'm just saying, I'm in the botanical garden guy. And let's see if Vody gets in the botanical garden. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So I count 37. You may want to go with that guy, but I can tell you how. Never mind. So. 
So 37 times the word throne shows up. And, and so by repetition, we would, we would understand that, that there, there is, there is this emphasis that there's a king. This king is Jesus. And he's sitting on his throne. He's ruling the nations. And as we looked at last week, um, you, you could almost call this beast Jesus. This, this picture of Jesus as he really is. Not as the brief 33 years of his incarnate state of, of taking on flesh in which he came to be abused at the hands of men and rejected and take my sin and yours to go to the cross with it so he could give us grace and mercy. That, that is not how, that is not how we fully worship him. We, we worship beast Jesus. This wool, white, clean, fully holy, flame of fire eyes with a sword Jesus and we looked at him last week and that's our king and he sits on this throne and he's ruling the nations well and so we're going to see various scenes all through the book of, of Revelation heavenly scenes and those scenes are there to remind us that, that our king rules and that he is the object of our affection the object of our worship and so we remember there is a movement even in the book that we looked at last week in the passages of movement of worship of he reveals himself and in his revealing of himself the people respond in worship and so we're going to see this movement of revelation response revelation response so we see that a major theme a major lead theme in this book is is that of worship that we, the church, are called to worship. And, and so when we come from chapter 1 into chapter 2, and we're going to follow through with the lives of these seven churches all the way through chapter 3, we're going to come now to this, this response part. We've seen Him as He is. We, we've, we've had Him revealed. The apocalypse is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And we've seen Him as He is. And what we're going to be looking at for the next six weeks and today is how these churches respond. Their response of worship. And we're going to start with the, the church at Ephesus. How does the church at Ephesus respond to Jesus? The question I have for you is, how will you respond? How are you and I, how are we collectively as a church going to respond in worship? In song, because, because that is part of our worship, but in our lives lived how will we respond? Because you see, what he says to each of these churches, he says to individuals and to the corporate body as well. We are a body. We are Three Rivers Community Church, but Three Rivers Community Church is also made up of individuals. So what he says to the individual, he also says to the whole. Your response in worship is counted also as my response is worship. When Jesus speaks to the church, he speaks to individuals and the whole. This is a piece of our culture that, that is, is somewhat rotten and we don't quite see this as vital. But we're an individualist culture. It's me and, and what I do doesn't really affect you, so just leave me alone, right? That's kind of how we approach This is my bit and it's not yours, right? That's not true. And, and most of the, the rest of the world, particularly in the Middle East, get the, the tribal identity that what one does affects the whole because it's not just you as an individual. You are intimately connected to others because you're a family. Well, we are a family. The church is, is an individual group. Of, it's a body. It's one body. But that one body is made up of people, individual people. And, and what one person does affects everybody else. 
So when Jesus is speaking about their response to worship, it's not just, hey, jolly, here's your response, but it's jolly, your response, and everybody else, because you're part of the whole. Which is why the Scriptures call us to hold each other accountable. Because what you do in response affects me. And it affects others. And so when we come to our response of worship, it's important and vital that we see when he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, he's speaking to the whole, but he's also speaking to the individual components because you'll notice in this letter, not everyone is guilty of certain things, but the whole is counted as being guilty, although it may be one or two. And so there are implications to that that we will see in just a moment. So the question I have for you is, how will you as an individual Respond in worship that affects the collective whole. Well, what are you going to find out in this passage of the church at Ephesus? Point number one. We start off once again in this movement of revelation response. Seeing Jesus as he is. Jesus maintains the spiritual vitality of the church and is present with the church. Listen carefully to verse one. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, there's, there's a lot here, okay? And, and so, in interest of, of time, I'm going to be very careful here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on too much emphasis on one particular part. But he says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right. There's a key component to our spiritual vitality and that, and, and that is this, that, that we aren't just material. There is more to what is happening right now than what you see. We are not atheists. We are not materialists. We are theists, particularly theists that God is Jesus and with that worldview piece in place, we understand biblically that there's more in play than what you see right now. There is, there is spiritual reality to right now. There are angelic hosts who hate you. There has been a rebellion that informs history. And all human rebellion is birthed out of angelic rebellion against God. And there are hosts that hate God's people. And it, it takes a blind, spiritually blind individual to read the scriptures and miss this, this conflict between the evil one and God's people. Even how you're thinking about your salvation is a war. The evil one loves guilt. It's a grand tool. The gospel destroys guilt. And, and, so, and so we understand to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right, there is, there is a conflict going on. There are hosts now in play as we speak. You know that's weird for us little Baptist people to talk about because we like our practical atheism. It's all about me and I control the environment. You may not be as in control as you think you are. Because what you're thinking right now may not just be neurons firing. There could be conflict right now over you in your heart and in your mind. And there's a war going on for truth. I have no doubt that some of the things you took in this weekend, you're probably wrestling with them. 
Because the, if, if you put this worldview on a distinctly Christian worldview, there are things you have to do. And here's the deal. Vody didn't have to make a ten-point list for you to walk away from because Holy Spirit has already been ultra clear what you have to do. It's not an issue what I need to do. It's an issue of, oh gosh, am I going to do it? Am I really thinking that? No. That's war. You are fighting spiritual conflict. And so there is war going on, and I have no doubt that one of the enemy's greatest tools is to get the church off mission, to get us off task, to get us just... I mean, he doesn't have to get us totally off truth, just like a hair off. When your hair off truth, your worldview skewed, when your worldview skewed, everything else gets skewed, and he wins the day. So to the angel of the church, right, there is war going on. But he reminds them, these are the words, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. You remember what that was? The stars of the church, the angels of the churches, the lampstands of the churches. You remember the picture last week that beast Jesus is in control of the hosts of heaven. They're in his hand. Those who didn't rebel in the beginning are at his bidding. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that they exist to do his work on our behalf in the spiritual realm. So he's in charge of the host, even the evil one. He has on a leash. The evil one can do nothing apart from his grace to you. Good news. Satan is not a co-equal with God and there are two sides to the force. And it's good versus evil. We're not sure who's going to win. That's not the issue. There is one true God who rules the universe. Even Satan who can do nothing, nothing without his permission. That's good news, by the way. So he holds the host of heaven in his hand. And he walks among the lampstands. What is that? The lampstands are the churches. Jesus maintains the spiritual vitality of his church. And he is present with his church. I want you to understand something right now. Our spiritual vitality together is held in the hands of Jesus. He rules our spiritual vitality. Our spiritual vitality is not... Solely dependent upon me, you, what we do this morning, our room. Jesus is in charge of our spiritual vitality. And he walks among us. This is crazy. But I I want you to try to go with me here. He is here now. This is weird. If you're a practical atheist, this is crazy. It's like, no way. Because there's not more than what I can see. Oh, no. No, to put on, the, put on the lens of Scripture and understand. He walks among us now. I'm going to show you one of the most amazing things you'll find in Scripture. John chapter 14. Remember, John wrote the revelation as Jesus reveals to him this. He's also the author of the Gospel of John. I want you to hear in John 14, 15 to 20, an amazing shift in personal pronouns. I think grammar doesn't matter. This is amazing. Doctrine is built on the back of grammar. It is. It is. If you don't read and pay attention, you lose beautiful truth. Listen, listen to John 14, 15 to 20. And I want you to see if you can pick up on the shift in the personal pronoun and the implication of it. Okay, I'm going to read slowly. You, you read with me. 
You've got your Bible, read along. Jesus has just told the twelve that he's going to leave them and go away. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To Philip's, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus said, Thomas, do you still not understand? Or Philip, do you still not understand? If you see me, you've seen the Father. Then we jump down to verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, and listen to this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Alas parakletos. Another, another counselor like me. There's two words for another. There's alas and heteros. Heteros is another of a different kind. Alas is another of the same kind. I will give you alas parakletos. Another like me. Another counselor like me. Because you see, they're worried. He's leaving. Who's going to teach us? Where are you going? Who's going to feed us? Who's going to care for us? He says, i got another one like me. Another counselor. To be with you forever. Not part time. Not just if you sing the right songs or if you wear the right clothes or if you walk in holding your lips just right. You know, forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it, the world, neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Did you catch the shift in personal pronouns? He goes from he to I. The Spirit's job is not to draw attention to himself, but to the Son, Jesus. When Jesus shifted these personal pronouns from he to I, what he's saying is this. When the Spirit of truth who dwells in you is present, I am present. (laughs) Thomas, I'm here. Philip, I'm here. Church, He's here. So that when we respond in worship, we're not just singing a song. We're singing to the King. He is the audience. He is the receptor of our praise. In this room, which makes it even more astounding that He would care to show up. I hate that language, show up as if He's absent. Back up. That's bad language. That he would care to forever be present. That he would care to forever remain in me. Guiding me into truth. Leading me. Jesus maintains our spiritual vitality. Guys, your spiritual vitality is not linked to your performance. Your spiritual vitality isn't linked to our cool factor as a church we're not cool thank god we're not cool jesus rules our spiritual vitality he is present right now and the challenge for most of us is to listen to see to taste the holy because he is present often 
when we recognize these things, we can recognize the presence of the Lord through encouragement. Have you ever just come together corporately and you walked in and life stunk? And you walked into the cloud, the ethos, the, the atmosphere of the gathered people of God. And it's just like, this is good. You know why? That, though, again, that's not neurons firing. That's not because Emmett's hot. He is. But, but you walk into the ethos of Emmett and I feel better. Love you, brother. I've got pictures of Emmett that I'm going to give him later today. I found from back in 1997, and he's a hot man. But uh, <laughs> but it's not because you walked into the presence of certain people. It's not because I saw my bud. She walked into the ethos of the gathered people of God where Jesus is walking around in our midst. And the reason there was encouragement is because the king met you. The king met you. Sometimes we walk into the ethos and, and conviction hits. Not, not, not like guilt because, oh, God hates me, but like, oh, I know I shouldn't have done that. It's because he loves you and he's treating you like a child. And he, he wants to bring about righteousness in you, his kid that he's adopted and put his name on. You walk in, it's like, you remember when you were a kid and you knew you were wrong and your parents didn't know what you had done yet, but you knew that you knew what you had done and you tried to avoid your parents because you knew when you walked in the presence of your parents, you feel really bad because you knew that you knew and they didn't know. So you just avoid your parents in hopes they would never find out that they would never know what you know you did. You know what I mean? So, so you walk, so you avoid your parents. You know what I mean? So you get, but when you get with your parents, you're like, oh, I feel so awful because I know they don't know. Should I tell them? Oh, gosh. Because you've got the presence of your parents, and there's something about that. It's like, authority. Ah, ooh, no, I don't want them to know. Jesus knows, so there's no hiding from him. And, and when you walk into the ethos of the gathered people of God, where Jesus is, is walking around in the midst of his people, because he walks among his churches, that little, oh, I know you know, and I know I know. And what he beautifully does is brings us to repentance. Clear direction. You ever been unclear? What am I supposed to do, man? I don't know what I'm supposed to do about this or, or right in front. How do I? And you come into the ethos and the cloud and you get, well, this makes sense, man. How did that, that that's not just, again, neurons weren't firing. Things just didn't line up. The stars just didn't go well today. It's not because there's a full moon. It's because Jesus is here. Allah's parakletos, the counselor, is present. Wisdom. Didn't know what to do. You, you knew there was a circumstance, a situation. You couldn't quite figure out what was pushing it, what was moving it. But you knew something wasn't right. You didn't know how to act. And all of a sudden, boom, it made sense. You know, I know what's going on here. I know how that, and I know how to respond. It's Jesus. That's the counselor giving counsel. Jesus maintains our spiritual vitality. But number two, Jesus knows the good work done by his church. You know, here's the deal. We don't have to come and trumpet our good work. We don't have to... We don't, we don't have to go and, and speak of all that we do so that people think we're super spiritual and that we're better than them or them or whatever they do we may be. But, you know, I'm just saying, we don't have to trumpet that because Jesus knows. He knows. Look at verse 2. 
verse 3 and verse 6. I know your works. I know your works. Your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus knows the good works done by his church. You know, oftentimes we, we try to do good ministry, and it just seems to be a struggle and a hard work. And we wonder, do people, do they care, do they know? Irrelevant, Jesus knows. He knows. He knows. I mean, it's verse 2. It's not hard to exegete this one. I know your works. I know them. Their perseverance. Their intolerance for evil. And the fact that they were testing and uncovering false teachers. One particular example is given here is the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, just so you know, it is very ambiguous as to the identity of this group of people. But you have a nice little note with lots of little footnotes on what things mean there in this little scholarly article. But by and large, there's speculation that this group of people, regardless of their identity, it was proper for the church at Ephesus to hate them, their works, particularly hate their works. But it could have been a sect of people growing out of Nicholas, who was one of the original deacons in the early church in Acts chapter 6. Possibly some who held to the teaching of Balaam, which is referenced in Jude. Probably practicing idolatry. Could have been a super legalistic sect of people who, whose righteousness was built upon their good works. Regardless of their identity, this we know. This we know. Jesus knew that they found them, called them out, and dealt with their heresy. Jesus knows our good works. But point number three, catch this, he also knows the faults of his church. He also knows the faults of his church. Look at verse four and five. But I have this against you. I have this against you. I mean, Jesus can have something against his church that he walks amongst? Yeah, he can. If he loves us, he must. We were talking about this in our connect group this morning. And several of the guys picked this out and, and caught this. We define love as Elizabethan nicety. To us, love equals never saying you're wrong. Love, love equals accepting them regardless of what they think or believe. And, and you will never find that in the scriptures. You'll never find that. That is not love. I would argue that's idolatry and it's ultimately hatred of that individual. If we take their sin and are okay with it and never deal with it, we hate them. And idolatry is good to us. If Jesus loves us, He must see our faults. But distinguish between our corporate faults and individual righteousness. 
you are righteous based on Christ, not your deeds. You get that, right? You know that. We preach that. We are gospel all the way. You got that, right? You are not judged by Christ on your deeds for righteousness. Your righteousness is hidden with Christ in God and you are counted as not guilty, right? Corporately, Jesus sees our corporate faults and he knows them. And if he loves us, he will correct them. Why? Because we bear his name. You see, this is, this is why the church is so vital. It's when we put church, Three Rivers Community, if we said Three Rivers Community Exchange Club, Three Rivers Community Civitan, Three Rivers Community whatever, and didn't put church on it, wouldn't matter. But when you, when you put church on the end of your name, what you're saying is the bar is high. Our mission is specific. Then the question becomes, are we living up to the bar and are we mission specific? And if we are not living up to the bar and are not mission specific, we need to take the word church out of our name because why? When you put church in there, what you're saying is Jesus. We represent the mission and standard of Jesus Christ. You understand the responsibility that comes? That's not, you just don't willy-nilly take that on. It's like, ooh, I want to start a church. Yeah, woo. Smoke machine, lights. Ow, yeah. No, what you're saying is this, what you see equals Jesus. That's, that's not play things. That's not play pretties. Those aren't toys. We're talking truth, reality. You, you tracking with that? You see how serious that is? And so, if Jesus loves us, He has to look and see, guys, are you mission specific? Are you doing the work? Are you meeting the standard to be called my church? If He loves us, He's got to know our faults, but He's also going to love us and point them out. Particularly the church at Ephesus, what was their problem? You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, no doubt some of you if you've been raised in a Christian culture, you've heard a message on this. Um, and some were going to argue that the leaving of their first love was they left their love of God. And some then are going to argue for the other option that they, they've left their first love of people, assuming Jesus' love is intact. And you hear it different. Yes. Yes. It's both of those. I just want to put a footnote here. They did this before Bodie did it this weekend in my Botanical Gardens article. He stole my thunder. Just kidding. When Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? Well, you heard this this weekend if you were there. You, when Jesus was asked, what is, what is the greatest commandment? Oh, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then your neighbor is yourself. But you remember, you can't. It's hard to love God with everything. Have anything left over to love your neighbor, right? You ever take a look at the ten? The first four are God. The second, last six are people. One through four, love of God. Five through ten, love of neighbor. The problem wasn't Jesus' response. The problem was they asked a dumb question. And there are dumb questions. 
Jesus' response to them, which is greater? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love God, love your neighbor. Why? Because your neighbor is created in the image of God. And the problem with the fall, Grudem says it well, at the fall, the image of God is distorted in man. So our neighbor has a distorted representation of the character of God in them. And if I love God more than anything, I then have to love my neighbor. Not because they're intrinsically valuable, but because they bear the image of God. And my goal is to see them illustrate God well. Which is why I can't be okay with sin in them. Because sin is distorting the image of Christ. Which is why my response to them isn't, oh, your sin, oh, forget about it. It's, we have to deal with this. I love you, but I love the image of God in you because I love God first. The problem with the church at Ephesus, I would argue, is not that they had lost their love of God. They were finding false teachers. They obviously loved good doctrine. I believe the love they had lost was lived out in the fact that their love of God had lost the other part, and that is they weren't loving the image of God in man. And therefore, this could have looked something along the lines of a lack of church discipline. Church discipline that isn't practiced says we have an idol, and our idol is you. Just don't. You are my God. And I can't live without you. Because if you leave, budget drops. So let's just go to lunch and talk about it. Maybe their lacking of love looked like they were no longer disciplining those that the image of God was being distorted in. And therefore they weren't loving God fully. And they weren't really loving that individual. What what, what else could could this have looked like? Perhaps... A step down from church discipline or a lack of church discipline was they allowed lesser sin to remain because, well, it's really not that bad. Your life's a wreck. You give nothing to the kingdom and you do nothing but consume God's resources. We'd look at that and go, oh, bad state in life. I would say idolatry. Why? Because you own nothing. I threw a little tweet out on the Twitter world this week. If, if Psalm 19 is right, I can never be an owner. You go in the, the glove compartment boxes of my cars and you can pull out a title deed. Owner. That's a lie. I own nothing. He is the owner of all things. I'm simply a manager of his resources. But it's okay. It's okay. It just happens to be the way it is. We go, shh. Just mosey right along. I'm not saying there's not grace to help people get through those times. But unfortunately for a lot of us, it's just like, "Eh, it don't matter. It's okay. So we allow lesser sin to remain because, well, it's not that bad. If I love you, I want you to recognize you also are a manager, not an owner. So therefore, those are God's resources you're consuming. The image of God in you is broken. Let's fix that. And our love looks like, let's fix that. Let's learn budgeting. What a great tool of organization God made. Let's get out of debt. You can do that. It's possible. It's possible. 
And then look what you can give to God. Image of God restored. God's the ultimate giver. He sent his own son. He gave us his son to die in our place for our sin. Let's, let's give him everything. It's his. We want to restore the image of God. Perhaps they were correcting some and not correcting others. We can afford to lose you. I'm not pointing at individually. We can afford to lose you, but we can't afford to lose this guy. So we, he doesn't have a sin problem. You see, maybe they were correcting some and not correcting others. Perhaps the leaders were in sin and, and they weren't corrected. Regardless of the speculation, the point is the love of God and love of neighbor was lacking. Although they loved good doctrine. What scares me about this passage is we love good doctrine. We default to good doctrine. But the question becomes, is doctrine our idol? I don't think so. I hope not. But our love of God must also look like love of neighbor and the image of God in them restored properly. Does that make sense? Finally, Jesus offers sustained vitality to the church that repents. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says this a lot in the Gospels. You recognize that statement? He who has an ear, let him hear. What we miss in English is the fact that in Greek, this is an imperative command. It sounds like when you translate this, it's sort of like a good idea. If you've got a good ear, listen. This is imperative command. Jesus is speaking imperatively. You guys know what a command is? It's drill sergeant, not shop owner. Okay? You might want to... No, it's drill sergeant. All right? It is. It is. You've got a good ear? Listen. Hear. This is important. So he says, he who has ears, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The imagery here is that those who follow after me, who do my work, who are mission specific, coming hard and fast after me, your vitality will be strong. The imagery here is the tree of life in the middle of the garden from which Adam and Eve would stay in blissful relationship with God forever. And he says, you come after me, you will stay vital. Jesus offers sustained vitality to the church that repents. But notice, back up in verse 5, the second half, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the deal, guys. This, this, is, this is the crazy thing about a Christian worldview and a capitalist worldview. Capitalist worldview says we've got to survive. We've got to survive. We've got to make sure the budget's in. We've got to do all these things. We've got to, we've got to survive. And that equals vitality. Because you could drive up the streets of Rome, Georgia, and there's some surviving institutions that do not do the mission. Missions equal... They're not doing the mission. There's no concern for the nations. There's no concern for the lost in dark corners. It's survive. Pay staff. Pay bills. As if they can sustain their vitality. When in fact, they may be paying bills. They may manipulate money out of people. They may pay staff. But the question is, why is that vital? Where is the vitality in that? Who's transformed? Where is gospel penetrating dark corners? It's not. 
They're an organization. They're not mission specific. Their eyes aren't on Jesus. What we got to remember, church, is that our vitality is never, ever, ever found in building, in budget or payroll. Our vitality is found in fixing our eyes on Jesus and running as hard and fast and recklessly toward the mission as we possibly can. And Jesus says, you, you conquer, you conquer these things, you come after me. You eat from the tree. (laughs) Your vitality will be strong. You will be effective. You will be powerful. And isn't it just like God? And this vaguely sounds biblical. I delight in taking the weak and showing myself strong. Isn't it just like Jesus to take what the world thinks is weak and exalt his strength? And often our worldview says if we are strong, then we are strong. And Jesus says, no, when you're weak, I am strong in you. I say to us, Three Rivers Community Church, we do much well. But let us not grow weary in loving God, loving our neighbor, and keeping our eyes fixed on the mission. I pray, oh, I pray, that someday God would would shut down an organization and give us their, their place. And all we'd have to spend is what we spend now. So that we continue to be so mission. We were talking at dinner the other night. And, and, and the story gets out. And people want to know. Vody was asking. He's like, dude, how, I've heard, heard a few things. He said, this is what we do. And this is what you guys do. Man, how do you guys do this? And we're talking about some of our story. We never sacrificed the mission. But wouldn't it be cool one day. That if God gave us the capacity to expand that mission. So that others could learn to do some things that we do well. But let us not forget in pursuing that. Jesus didn't ask us to expand the mission. He asked us to keep our eyes fixed on him. Run recklessly and hard toward the mission. Keep your eyes on me and I will grant you to eat from the tree of life. I want spiritual vitality. I want spiritual kingdom effectiveness. Not necessarily something that looks good on the outside. So let us not think that our vitality is in what we look like. It's in who is running the ship. And that's Jesus. So lest, us, lest we be tempted, remember, let us not grow weary in Jesus driving this ship. Love God. Love neighbor. Stay mission specific. Follow hard and reckless after Jesus. And our vitality will be strong until he comes. By God's grace. Let's pray. Father, um, it is only by your grace that we stand. Um, it is only in your It's only in your grace that we operate. Lord, my intention is not to be critical of brothers who are trying to keep their eyes fixed on the mission. Or um, It is my mission to be critical of those who do not live up to the standard of what you said is right. But my intention is not to cast a disparaging eye toward a brother working hard to do what's right. So, Father, you know my heart. But for us, let us not lose sight of the mission. Lord Jesus, we long to taste you walking among us. We ask that you would cause the lampstand of Three Rivers Community Church to burn brighter because we lean more and more on you for that light. 
Jesus, we need you. We need the gospel. We need the gospel to be clear to us. We need to be able to proclaim it clear to others who need to hear it. We need you to be our vitality. We need you to be the one that pushes the gospel into the frontier of the Pashtun. We need you to be the one who pushes the gospel and causes the word to run quicker into the hearts of those who are hurting in our town. We need you to be our vitality. So Jesus, would you convict, encourage, give direction, and give wisdom and discernment to your people so that we can love you more and love our neighbor and the image of God in them. As we come to respond to you in song, we pray, Jesus, that you would sit enthroned on the praises of your people. Give us eyes to see beyond what we see right now so that we can taste and see and enjoy the fact that you are good.